I decided to push on and keep testing. I knew it was going to work. Come to find out that day, after many, many weeks of working on this project, not only did we confirm capability, but we increased our tool life so much so that we would save over a million dollars a year. Bashi presents The Means of Production, a podcast about what it really takes to build, maintain, and scale the processes that produce the physical products that power our world. Every episode, we ask a manufacturing expert to walk us through the nuts and bolts of how they do their job. We explore how and why they got into manufacturing, dive deep into the hardest problems they've solved on production lines, and discuss their thoughts on what's broken in manufacturing today and how those things can be fixed. This podcast is hosted by me, Siddhit Sangvi, Pashi's US operations lead and former assembly engineer at Ford Motor Company. If you're a part of the manufacturing world and you're interested in being a guest on the means of production, email me at siddhith at pashi.com. That's S-I-D-D-H-I-T at P-A-S-H-I dot com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 9 of The Means of Production. And with us today is Matt Byrne, e-motor stator, lead engineer for powertrain manufacturing engineering at Ford Motor Company. Hey, Matt. Hey, Sid. How you doing? I'm doing good. Good. Glad to be here. And I'm very glad to have you, Matt. Before Matt and I speak on the podcast, Matt is going to read out a disclaimer. Yeah, so uh, my name is Matt Byrne. I work at Ford Motor Company, and everything in this conversation is my own opinion, and it's not the opinion of Ford Motor Company. I'm not a spokesperson for Ford Motor Company, official or otherwise. All right, so I've been wanting to ask you, and and I know this is it's quite funny that I said that I don't want to ask you how you are <laughs> until the podcast started, so I apologize. So, Matt, how are you? I've been, uh, we've, we've talked after a very long time. So, tell me, how is life, how is work, and just everything? Oh, I'm having a lot of fun, Sid. And it sounds like me and you have one thing in common with uh, everything going on lately. I uh, was blessed with a beautiful baby girl back in 2020 um, in April uh, 14th actually so we're getting used to the life with a baby so the life is three plus a dog Um, but yeah everything's been going great just getting through the pandemic and keeping things rolling at work and moving into new positions this is uh, actually my second position since COVID hit. Funny enough, I started as a lead engineer in hypoid gear manufacturing back in February 2020. And then this role came up and I took a shot and interviewed for the job and was accepted as the lead engineer for the first stator manufacturing line going into Ford Motor Company. So it's pretty been pretty exciting. How's everything been going for you? Well, thanks for asking, Matt. But first, congratulations. This is very, very exciting news. You know, 
a new child puts everything in perspective absolutely everything and as one of my my bosses said that you won't recognize your life before your baby so i think that's what's going to happen and uh, i i know you'll uh, you'll cherish every moment it's it's going to be a lot of fun a lot of challenges and uh, your position congratulations uh, again on that so two new things for you two completely uh, unprecedented you know things you know that have you know you've you've never experienced before with with like a stator line right everything is a new process uh, so these are two new and exciting things for you and i'm very happy matt uh, i am doing fine i'm having a lot of fun doing like a lot of new things that i never thought i'd do uh, so life in a startup is 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 just like that and uh, yeah like like you know having a podcast conversation with you so i get to catch up with so many people who are subject matter experts in so many different areas of manufacturing i get to profile their career and and share it to the world so so i'm having a lot of fun in that activity as well so matt tell us a little bit about how you got into this field you know right from wherever you want to start with you know it could be your childhood it could be your college all the way and i i know you as someone who has worked in gears so that that's what i had in mind but now you are in also in 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 the more electrification side so up till now what has been your journey how did you get here in the first place yeah sure yeah so started out my uh father was a actually a engineer for Goodyear Tire and Rubber company growing up in the uh, Union City, Tennessee factory uh, around where I'm from originally because I'm from originally from West Kentucky and, you know, grew up seeing him and, and what he did and, you know, hearing about his days and the challenges that he faced and, he always tried to get me to have, you know, somewhat of an engineering mindset, you know, help me fix up, uh, you know, I was helping him fix up farm equipment, you know, you know, when I've got my first car, he would show me, you know, what to work on, how to figure out what the problem was with it. And yeah, so that kind of got me into the engineering mindset. I grew up, you know, loving to take things apart. Most of the time I couldn't get them back together, but, you know, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun <laughs> growing up. But, uh, yeah, just I, I had that mentality to figure out how things work, right? And I think that's kind of the start of any engineer. If you talk to anybody, it seems like that's how everybody started is just tearing things apart, getting very hands-on, intuitive, and looking into how things work, basically, right? Yeah, so that was kind of what got me interested in engineering. And I knew I wanted to go into some sort of engineering, but it was in 10th grade in high school that I decided that I wanted to go and get my master's in biomedical engineering. And I know you're going to think that that's funny. Oh, wow. What I'm doing now has nothing to do with biomedical engineering, but we'll get there in in a minute, I guess. Right. So. So part of that was I had to choose what I wanted to do as a bachelor's to get my master's in biomedical engineering. So I wanted to go to the University of Kentucky 
I I had other plans. I had played baseball in high school, and I always wanted to try playing baseball in college, but I ended up going to the University of Kentucky, uh, University of Kentucky at Paducah, actually. It's similar to, like, U of M Dearborn. Um, it's a branch campus, and they specialize in mechanical and chemical engineering. I actually got a full ride to go there for mechanical engineering. That's nice. Yeah. My dad was very happy with that. You know, he didn't have to help me out paying for any more colleges, you know, with, you know, the number of brothers and sisters I have. He was very happy that he didn't have to pay for anything there. And I was very happy that I didn't have to have loans coming out. So I was, you know, very blessed, very, very blessed. That's for sure. So I ended up getting a, a full ride to go to the University of Kentucky at Paducah. And my plan was I was going to go to UK, get my bachelor's in by, or in uh, mechanical engineering, and then I was going to apply for my master's degree in the biomedical engineering. Looking at it, that was the you know that was a good pathway to get into what I was looking for for biomedical. Well, in comes my so the end of my junior year, I decided that I wanted to try getting a internship in something in the biomedical field. So I applied at the University of Tennessee to be a research assistant in the biocellular chemical and molecular biology department as a computational biology research assistant, basically. I applied for this, and funny enough, I got accepted at a different position at a... uh, for lack of knowing the remembering the name, it was a cookie factory, and it was going to pay me a lot of money, but I decided I needed to figure out where my career was going to go after college, and I got accepted to the University of Tennessee, so I moved to Knoxville, Tennessee for the summer to do an internship. I sat behind a computer. I programmed, ran multiple programs through the supercomputers at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, trying to look at uh, the aggregation of azosperillum brassilens. I don't know if I said that correctly. That's how I used to say it. Nobody corrected me, so I'm going to roll with it. But uh, (laughs) So we we were finding a way to model the different factors that you could introduce to cause the this uh, this bacteria to aggregate and through doing this you could use this in the biomedical field and, and in the you know even the biology field to to model different uh, other you know bacteria and other other factors right but anyways I getting a little off topic but anyways I was a computational biologist, research assistant, and I decided that that was not for me. I didn't want to sit behind a computer desk for eight hours a day. I didn't want to run these programs. I didn't want to, you know, I was more of a hands-on guy. And I knew that. I kind of knew that. But the one blessing that it gave me is that was the year in the summer that I actually met my wife, surprisingly. We, uh, We met in Knoxville. She was working there. And came and sat down next to me at church. So it was a blessing in disguise. It not only told me that that, that was not the job for me, 
even though, you know, I worked with wonderful people, had a very, very good experience with it. It just wasn't, you know, it didn't tickle my fancy for lack of a better term. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, so that summer I, you know, I, I learned a lot about programming. I learned a lot about, you know, analyzing different factors and being able to look at different things. But so towards the end of that summer, I met my wife, you know, we stayed friends for a while, but, and then, then began dating, you know, a couple of years later. But anyways, I met her, kept up with her, but I came out of that internship thinking, this is not exactly what I want to do. You know, I still think maybe I'm interested somewhat in biomedical engineering, but let's see what happens, you know, going through my senior year. As you can imagine, four years of engineering school, there's there's a select few that want to go on and, and stick with it and get through their master's and even their doctorate and, and pursue further degrees. I... Even though I graduated summa cum laude, I was one of the ones that said, you know what, I think I'm ready to go to work. So I started interviewing. I interviewed at a few places, one of which, um, well, you know, multiple, but, but one of which I was very interested in um, was dealing in the aeronautical or the aerospace industry um, pro programming the FADEC controllers. And I, I was very excited about this position. And then Ford called, I interviewed for the position at Ford. And when I got back, I got an offer from the aerospace industry and they said, you know, I told them, I said, well, you know, can I have until this date? And I knew that Ford had said that they would get back to me within five days. And at the maximum, it would maybe be seven, right? So I told this company to be respectful. I told them that I needed until the sixth day for Ford because I was really holding out for the Ford offer. And uh, I, I figured if it's after the fifth day, I'm probably not going to get the position at Ford. And so 12 o'clock came around on the sixth day and I called the company and I told them, I said, I'm so excited. I'm ready to start uh, working for for y'all. I'd love to come and work for your company, you know, whenever you're ready to receive me. They were excited. Everybody was excited. Three hours later, Ford calls. As you can imagine, this is a predicament. Oh and I just, yeah. I just I just accepted a position. And then now three hours later, you know, it, like I said, it's a blessing in disguise, but <laughs> it's, it's just funny how things like that happen in life, right? You know, it's just like, here I was, I waited until the sixth day and I was thinking, you know, they're an hour ahead of me in Detroit. So it's one o'clock there. So they're probably not going to call me today. So I'll go ahead and call. Sure enough, three hours later, it was like 4.30, 4.30 their time is 3.30 my time because it was central time versus Eastern. And uh, it's like, oh my goodness. It's like, so now I got put in that position. But anyways, obviously, you know what happened next. I accepted the job at Ford and I had to have the awkward conversation with the other company to say, I'm so sorry. I know I accepted the position, but I need to uh, take that back and I can't take that job. Right. So anyways, I get up here and I started in the hypoid gear manufacturing at Ford for powertrain manufacturing, working on the 8.8 high torque, 
that was going in the Mustang and and the F one fifty, and you can imagine me thinking, oh, to to backtrack a little bit, my favorite car growing up, my dad and granddad both own nineteen sixty model in the sixties model Mustang. So my granddad had a sixty eight fastback. My dad had a I'll say it was a 68 or 69 fastback. And so obviously you can imagine that I was a huge Mustang fan. My first, my first car was a 2001 bullet Mustang. I know what you're thinking. Who would ever give a 16 year old kid a bullet (laughs) Mustang, but I worked from the time I was 13 and I knew what I wanted. And I'm telling you what, that's, uh, I, I ended up, you know, paying for the most of it out of my pocket. And then my dad and, and granddad thankfully helped me <laughs> make up the rest. Cause even, you know, starting work from 13 to 16, you, you don't make enough money really to pay for a, a car, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, didn't. I didn't at least, I don't know. Maybe some people do, but anyway, so I got a, I had a bullet Mustang. I put a, I drove it to 175,000 miles and then it decided it didn't like me anymore and wanted to keep, causing me issues so i ended up selling it unfortunately so there's not a a good ending to that story but um i still regret it to this day but you know you can't take it back um but yeah so i started on the mustang the new model mustang program this is the 2015 mustang that was coming out and it was you know obviously it was a whole model change it had that beautiful sleek design i i fell in love but anyways I was working on the axle, uh, and uh, I started as an FCG, uh, Ford College graduate. I'm sure you, most of the, or a lot of the people that you've interviewed from Ford has told you about being an FCG. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't know, if, I don't know if you came in as an FCG at Ford, or if you came in as direct hire, but, um, but yeah, it was. You know, I started as an FCG, so I had my rotations planned out. I ended up, I guess they say I did good, a good enough job. So I was only supposed to say six months to a year maximum in my rotation. I ended up staying a year and a half and had to wait for a new boss to get moved to uh, my next position. But uh, I learned a lot during that time. I troubleshooted everything. I deep dove about every department that we went through for the the gears because we make them from the forging. We take them from the forging to the final product, right? So every operation in between, you know, I, I was involved in and I was learning about. And so I loved it. I absolutely enjoyed that position because I was learning everything. I had multiple projects going on all at the same time. I had two departments that I was in charge of also for the launch. So it, it was a good time. From there, I went to a, a tooling rotation in prismatic parts and I worked on uh converter housing and case converter housing machining basically um, and my counterpart worked with me on those two and then also valve body so we were involved in that i did that for six months and then i moved into advanced manufacturing working it, it was funny how it ended up i they gave me options on what i kind of wanted to get involved with and i told them well i kind of want to get involved with everything that you're offering so they managed to work out a rotation that I could work 50% of the time for one boss and 50% of the time for another. And so I had multiple projects within uh, advanced vision applications 
and advanced uh, machining applications. And so I, I got a lot of experience from that, worked on projects, some now that have gone global throughout Ford, some that have not gone a lot farther than the lab that we worked on, but you know, that's, <laughs> that's part of it, I guess. Right. Right. Yeah. So, uh, then I worked and I went to, I was told that they had an opportunity for me, which is funny because if anybody at a company offers you an opportunity, it's, it usually means they really need somebody to, to help out and you're probably not going <laughs> to go anywhere in the amount of time. I think, I think you know where I'm going with this. Right, right, right. So, yeah. So I started in transmission gear machining in 20, I want to say 2015. And I was told that it would be a three to six month position to help out with the 10 speed launch. That three to six months turned into, I want to say, four and a half years. Um, so, as you can imagine, wow. I, uh, wow. yeah, so I uh, started working with uh, hard turning machines and applications that they had there. They were having some issues with and had an issue supplier issue, uh, you know, a supplier with a lot of issues. And uh, so I helped out there and then phase two came along. And we were launching the same, basically this, a duplicate of phase one. And so we had a bunch of CNC machines, a bunch of, you know, tooth grind machines and stuff that I was in, I ended up being in charge of. And I took the lead position over one of our, you know, hard gear machining uh, departments, which consisted of everything between grinders, uh, CNC's, hard turn machines, that is, and then bushing presses along with, you know, all sorts of different applications. You know, when you talk about a transmission gear there, we had, I want to say there were 16 different gears that we were making for one transmission. So you can imagine most of these ran through this department. Minus the, the ring gear. So, yeah, we, we were having a lot of fun. A lot of fun out there. No, I think it was 12 gears, actually. So there's pinion suns. And, yeah, so 12 gears, not 16. But anyways, we are having a lot of fun. Um, and so I stayed there for the phase one, the phase two. I helped out on 10 speed for phase three. Worked as a lead engineer, or no, as a support engineer on phase four over one of the departments kind of as a lead engineer and then worked on some of the phase six. So you can imagine we have a lot of 10 speeds at Ford and we, uh, you know, this was a major product launch for Ford. So then comes the battery electric vehicle gears and I get put on this project and it was a great opportunity and I was working on this, but I started talking to my boss about, you know, developing my career. And he started looking around and found me a position back in hypoid gear manufacturing. So that was a, a plus for me. I already knew it. So it was easier to, you know, come into and working on a new product, basically coming in. That was just an absolutely massive gear set. 
So that was exciting, and it was working with some new technologies to forward as far, far as the hypoid gear manufacturing uh, goes. So that was exciting, and I worked in there for a year, and one of my former co-workers emails me one day, actually this year, back in February, and says, Matt, I have a perfect opportunity for you over here in electric motors. I think you would be the right guy for the job. And I was wondering if you'd like to interview for it. So I ended up interviewing for it. And the rest is, as they say, history. I've been over here for a couple months now. And uh, I took a three-week vacation as soon as I got over here. So I'm, I know they were very happy about that, Sid. Um, we, <laughs> I went down to Paraguay, South America. As a, you know, as we're saying, we had a our baby girl. And so I went down to Paraguay, South America, which is where my wife's originally from, for the for our daughter to meet her grandparents for the first time. So it's crazy, you know. Even though COVID hit, we were able to go down there. And thankfully, so far... COVID has avoided us and hopefully it continues to, but yeah, so I've come back and now I'm working full time on the first stator manufacturing line that's going into Ford. So it's very exciting, very exciting stuff. You know, as, as you've seen the announcements, this is the direction everybody's moving in. So we're on the, we're in the forefront for, for at least Ford on working on this and learning all this stuff. It's, it's a new challenge every day, but the really cool part about it is it uh, about it is that you're learning it for sometimes for the first time at Ford, and we're learning it. You know, we're taking the supplier's opinion on certain things, and we're you know we're inputting our own opinion into it as well, and and trying to find solutions to these problems that come up every day, and it's it's really really. I am very much enjoying myself, Sid. Some people think maybe I'm crazy because it's nothing but problems, but it's been a good been a good time. So that's kind of how I ended up where I'm at. I know I took I don't know thirty minutes to get there, but anyways, um, anyways, yeah. So that's where that's how I got to where I'm at, man. So no, you, I, I think you gave a great, uh, great journey chronicle. You know, it's it was entertaining it was informative it was revealing it was uh, it was pretty good so normally i you know if there's a term i don't understand i i interrupt and you know make it clear for the audiences because we get you know we were getting into quite some technical stuff but uh, you were you know you had such a good flow i didn't want to say anything but <laughs> i'm going to break down what you said matt uh, okay. because i think there was so much stuff in there that was you know it's worth uh, talking about you went from farm equipment to <laughs> biomedical engineering which involved computations to model you know all these biochemistry of all these you know bacteria you know, hunching over some petri dish or looking at these calcul, you know, these models in the computer all day, to realizing that maybe you know I'm I'm a hands-on guy and and then, you know, changing your path. But you know, before that, you you found you found your wife and and you thought, hey, you know what? I I guess that whole journey of going to this other field was actually worth it just for that, and then going into 
you know, Ford Motor Company after that tussle between all these offers that you got and going into high point gears. And, and, you know, I'd like to say here that a high point gear is a style of spiral bevel gear whose the two gears that mate, their axes do not intersect. So that is something special about a high point gear. So that is what Matt is talking about. You graduated summer cum laude, laude if I said that correctly, which is just basically highest distinction for, for any international audiences. But you decided not to go into academia. Again, so what I see here, Matt, is what it reveals is that at every point, you listen to your instinct that you are you are a hands-on guy, right? At several times, you looked at something, even though you had opportunity, you said, you know, there can be opportunities, but what I really want is to fix things and to solve problems on the floor. Uh, and that's exactly what you did. And and just jumping for a second to the ending, you said, you know, people think I'm crazy, but I'm actually enjoying it. That's because you have a natural enjoyment of solving problems because you literally grew up fixing things that could have been broken. So that is not crazy at all. That's in fact fantastic. Getting back to what you were saying Gears undergo, you know, lots of processes. So, so Matt was saying some of those processes. You know, there there's forging. They, you know, they're blank. So then you have to cut them. You have to grind them. And and hard gear machining is where the, you know, the part is greater than forty five HRC, which is you know the Rockwell scale of hardness. So they require special special kind of cutting tools, which can you know cut that kind of material. So it's a slightly different set of parameters. And then prismatic parts are basic features like slots or steps or holes or bosses, right, which may intersect with each other. So they are all made up of different prismatic surfaces. And eventually you you went in and out of gears. You know, you've been going in, in and out of, of, of gear manufacturing, but also finding great opportunities with, with stuff like advanced vision and advanced machining. And, and advanced vision here in the context of the auto industry is, is all about, you know, detecting things on the, on the plant floor, which otherwise a human would have to do. Uh, like whether, you know, there is some kind of, uh, grease applied somewhere or some kind of bolt missing from a from an install or or what have you so you got uh, that rotation planned quite well I, I think it was good except for that uh, four and a half year uh, thing that happened and uh, but again it, it showed that you know you were such an integral part of it that that they just wanted to keep you and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's it's not very good but I'm happy that you're in something that's at the forefront of Ford's strategy to to disrupt itself. And as the stator uh, lead engineer, I think I think uh, they were right. You you were the perfect guy. It brings you back to you know the Mustang with a different uh, powertrain. You know what I mean? So, and also I'm I'm very surprised that you were able to get that uh, bullet Mustang because you're probably that good at you know, fixing things and, and, you know, you knew what you were doing. So that's a great uh, vehicle to have. Bullet, by the way, is is this Steve McQueen movie in which this special, you know, this Mustang is there and then Ford came up with a special edition called the Bullet, which which has a lower clearance and, you know, just performance packages to, to make it more like a, like the car from that movie. So very full 
journey here and and you're quite young and you still see like a whole bunch of things from here and there and uh, that's great so matt you you've outlined your journey all the way from your childhood to your current job now can you walk us through what was probably in all of those different rotations or jobs the hardest technical problem that you've faced and and it doesn't have to be something that was one problem or something that was solved or unsolved it doesn't matter it's just something that is etched in your memory as as something that required you to to really you know do a lot of things that uh, were hard so what would that technical problem be one of the hardest let's see so one of the hardest technical problems that i faced was in the advanced manufacturing group and as a vision application engineer Basically, one of the main problems with the app, the previous application was a large tunnel that had a, multiple cameras throughout this tunnel. And if you ever changed over the line to a different variant, it would take forever to change over and you would have to run all sorts of verifications to make sure that everything is being caught through the line to make sure that oil is not leaking throughout the engine at the end of line so this is the end of line system checks a hundred percent of the engines coming off of uh, Ford's line after testing and so we had to come up with a solution that would replace this and allow for the changeover to be you know quick and you know that way the uptime for the line is is kept high and you know the downtime is not affected by the changeover of this system so the application that we came up with had a vision system on the end of a collaborative robot. And in using such, we could go around this engine and we could inspect all around this engine for oil leaks. We developed this, the programming that went into it. I was the lead programmer. Um, my boss was readily involved in it. I would almost hesitate to say I was even the lead. He was more of looking over me, telling me what to do. And, and, and so he was technically over everything, but I was the guy on, on the project, programming it, making sure it could hold to the values that we needed to hold it to, that it was repeatable, that it could detect everything we were wanting it to detect. Um, we were able to actually pick up a few of the main warranty issues that Ford had with engines um, with the camera after the fact. Uh, and so I, I learned to not only program the vision system and, you know, tweak it into very precise, uh, uh, to, to a very, to, to a, I learned to tweak it in to get, more precise with what we were looking at and to have that precision that we were looking for to detect an oil, you know, blob down to two millimeters in diameter. So you can imagine if, if an oil leak at the end of the line is, if it's anywhere, it's going to be two millimeters or bigger, right? Right. And so right. we decided that that would be a successful, you know, detection. And so we, we developed this system. We also looked at, you know, different things throughout the engine that were some of our high hit warranty issues. Um, 
and we implemented this in England, in one of our plants in England, and it was so successful, and everybody wanted to, the, the, that management put it into all global engine programs going forward would have this system. Our team ended up taking home the Henry Ford Technology Award in 2018 for this solution. And this is the highest award within Ford they, that you can win. And uh, it's been a huge success. Uh, and that was the funnest and coolest project that I've been involved with at Ford. Um, and so, yeah, those, those systems are going in globally. So that, that's one of the coolest and probably the hardest technical problem that I've been involved with, involved in. Wow, that that does sound cool. Everything about it um, sounds uh, like, like, you know, futuristic, right? It, there is a collaborative robot. There is a camera at the end of that thing. And it's going around. Uh, so, so I'm assuming it makes a certain kind of movement to over a certain area or, or does it just like, you know, look at one spot or. So the coolest part about the project that I forgot to mention, Sid, is, and somebody kind of gave me this challenge and I kind of ran with it, is we didn't have a hanging robot at the time, or at least that our specialists knew about within Ford. So the robot specialist, and we talked about it, we ended up developing a gantry, like a an extruded aluminum gantry and hang and had a adjustable platform and hung this robot upside down in our lab to inspect this and it was just the coolest thing ever and obviously the implementation they didn't use that um which we were kind of a little bit heartbroken about but you know maybe from a standpoint of having to ever change out the robot i guess it makes sense um because you got a robot upside down now granted this is a it's a collaborative robot so it's not a big robot but uh yeah that was kind of cool that that is cool i i guess my whole picture is is different in my head now that you mentioned that so i i think somebody did mention while i was at ford uh they they are kind of these spider-man style of robots that has that have come out um i think that's what you were referring to as as uh, what you didn't have as an option so you just built your team just built it to to be like that and um that is a good improvisation to put it on a on a gantry so yeah that's that's pretty cool also everything yeah. it gets cooler and cooler actually yeah yeah the the spider well they were like spider gauges i believe yeah those those were implemented on the transmission project um that i was on and those are pretty interesting gauges now they have their I, I guess they have their uses and then there are certain things that you can do with them that you can't do with other types of gauges and then there are certain things that they don't have the precision for or at least they don't yet but they are very very cool and yeah so but yeah th this uh this robot it's like a little robot it's like maybe 60 pounds but yeah it was interesting but, no uh, yeah yeah and and for for the audience you know i'm going to link it um you know kuka advertises a lot of their products i don't know if if you know if you had that robot from kuka or not and 
Um, but but they advertise, you know, this stuff on their LinkedIn pages. So for the audience, I'm going to link link collaborative robots as well as this the spider robot kind of thing. And a collaborative robot or a cobot is different from a regular robot in that there are sensors all around it measuring at a very high refresh, you know, pulse rate such that anyone putting their, you know, body part in a certain sphere of, you know, just in a certain certain sphere would cause the robot to just stop. Just, you know, it would just drop everything and stop. It would It wouldn't drop. It would just contract itself so that it wouldn't hurt anyone whereas an industrial robot is usually inside a cage it's quite fortified and you need extensive procedures to enter this while it is live and working and you need a pendant otherwise they can you know they can seriously injure people so cobots are this new way in which they collaborate with humans side by side um, and that's what Matt is talking about so there were several pieces of interesting technology that were used for the solution the the machine vision itself which you know requires a lot of programming to detect the right contrast or you know the right edges or the right you know color differences you know for oil i'm assuming the upside down nature of the robot which makes everything a little more difficult plus the the whole collaborative robot in itself so and 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 the fact that even though you combine all of these technologies, it still managed to work with a high degree of success and, and, you know, got replicated, you know, potentially saving the company a lot of money. So yeah. I, I think that was a really great project, uh, Matt. Thanks for sharing. That was, yeah, was uh, a, I learned a lot of things. It was definitely a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, the collaborative robots, the, the, the coolest thing about them is you can – the force control on them, you can turn it down and make it sensitive enough that you can hold out your finger. And if it hits your finger, even the slightest, it will stop and move, you know, in the opposite direction to retract back, basically. So it's it's really, really a cool technology that's come out um, in the in the collaborative robots. There's, you know, like you said, Kuka is one of the suppliers. There's multiple other ones that, you know, are throughout the industry as well. So, yeah, it's it's really cool technology well matt let's move on to like the the second part of the same kind of question which is that you know in in manufacturing there is as much non-technical work in terms of project management or communication and and so on and so forth so what has been your hardest non-technical issue and again you know it can be at any time during your career you can you can give any example that that you had to face yeah, this one I need to think a little bit about. Um, there's definitely been a few. Obviously, I'm a people person, so you know that said. So yep, I you know. know get. <laughs> I'm easy to get along with a lot of people, and 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 that's not ever been a major problem for me. But one of one of the hardest non technical problems, and I won't use a specific example for instance, but just as just an example, you know, that I know many people will face is dealing with conflicting issues, basically, and finding a solution to those conflicting issues. So actually, I will use an actual example. 
one of, and it's kind of a technical technical issue too. So I apologize about. Oh that no, thing, no, but, yeah. But, More uh, technical issues are always fine. Yeah, you know, but uh, the technical issue was we were having issues with machining down a weld line for one of our transmission gears and we were machining bearing surfaces along this line and what we came to find was we had multiple issues with runout now this is during the launch phase none of these parts were made and put into vehicles or anything like this this is just typical launch engineering issues that we come across right said so you to explain, I guess you can explain a little further on the, the launch if you want to take a second to explain that, how that works at Ford and yeah, right yeah. throughout other industries. Um, but so, yeah, you can touch on that in a minute. But basically, when we get a new model program, we go through all of these rigorous testings and capabilities and run statistical analysis on everything, every single feature. And one of our features was the run out at a bearing journal on this particular part. And we had that we were really struggling with finding a solution to this. The vendor was struggling with it. I was struggling with it. My tooling vendor was struggling with it. We were machining in this very tight space. We did not have enough room to use a conventional tool or anything that was you know readily available so we had to actually the ending we actually had to develop our own tool redesign the tool and we filed for a patent for it and it's it's still in the in the process i guess you would say but anyways we had to develop this tool i knew it was going to work I absolutely had a hundred percent confidence that this tool was going to work. Not necessarily maybe the particular one we were putting in, but I knew that this tool was going to solve our problem. What we were doing is we had to plunge a shoulder. So plunge, turn a shoulder and run down it. So we had to turn down it and then we had to turn across this bearing surface and make a radius on the other side. It was about a 12 millimeter or so surface, but the ending of the surface was right underneath the gear teeth. So to fit in there, it was a very tight tolerance and you could easily, easily crash the machine. So we had to develop our own special tool and I had confidence in this tool. My tooling vendor developed it for me. They made it. I knew it was going to work. I developed this excellent plan of we had to shut down production on this line. So this was running production for another variant of part. I had to shut down the production on the line for that variant of part, switch over to the new variant, which is very common on, on our production lines, and test out the new variant down this line. I had a plan laid out. I knew how long it was going to take us. I knew what we were going to do, and I got into it. I get into the first operation where we're using this tool. There's three different operations down this line that we're working on. The first operation is where, or the second operation that is, is where we're using this specific tool that we designed. The first operation we get capable, we're celebrating, we're having a good time. We know we, we're rolling down the right you know, road, right? 
we get into the second one and we start having some issues. We start breaking tools unexpectedly, trying to figure out what's going on. We suspect that, you know, maybe we didn't put in the tool correctly. Maybe it was, you know, not fitted in the tool properly. And we start having uh, catastrophic failures on the tooling. Like I said, I knew for certain that this tool was the solution. We knew it was going to work. Had all the confidence in the world that it was going to work. My launch manager comes up to me at the time. And this guy, I love this guy to death. He is a wonderful guy. And we are really great friends now. Um, and we were friends at the time. So, you know, in our relationships only got better afterwards. But he is a very straightforward, strict guy definitely takes you at your word and if he thinks something is not going correct he will make sure you know that you have messed up and, and move forward with it and uh, so he comes up and I tell him what's going on and he is worried about we have to get this machine back into production so we're going back and forth and tensions get high we start yelling at each other a little bit you know I try not to do that but with this guy it was kind of almost a game um, but, uh, we yelled at each other and I was frustrated. He walked away and I get, I, I get, you know, very, very frustrated. And so I walked back to the machine and, and at this point there was two options for me. I either give up and turn the line back over to production, admit failure and tuck my tail, run, run away and try to figure out something else. Or I proceed down the path that I know is, you know, I have certainty. Now, my certainty going into it was 100%. At this point, it was maybe 90%. I was getting a little bit worried about it. I decided to push on and keep testing. I knew it was going to work. Come to find out that day, after many, many weeks, many, many months of working on this project, we confirmed capability on this run out with that tool. Not only did we confirm capability, but we increased our tool life so much so that we would save over a million dollars a year on just one tool. Now, keep that in mind, Sid. That's one tool. That is ridiculous. That we that we fixed and we were saving the company a million dollars plus a year. One tool. So, yeah, that's the amount of parts we were going to run combined with the the significant price of this tooling that we were using because it was a special tool. It had to get into a special little area. And with that one tool, we could save the company over a million dollars a year. I pushed on. I, I stuck to my gut. I knew that what I was doing was going to make a difference. And even though I had people that didn't necessarily... They had faith in me, but maybe didn't necessarily think that I was going to solve it at this point. Even though they were going against me, I kept pushing forward. And <laughs> still to this day, I talked to this, uh, talk about this with the guy that, you know, you know, was my launch man. I said, you know, you almost had me. I said, you almost convinced me that I wasn't going to succeed. And he just laughs about it and said, well, you did anyways, didn't you? I was like, yeah, sure did. But, uh, just if you have confidence that your solution is going to work and and you know it will, you got to stick to it, right? 
and that's in every business, every, you know, any area that you're in, right? You got to take risk and you got to be willing to take risk. And your managers or bosses, or if you're, you know, working for yourself, you got to realize that sometimes you have to risk it. And sometimes you will fail, but you got to learn from the failure. It's not, it's only a mistake if you don't learn from it, right? But you got to be willing to take the risk in the way, in once you take the risk, you know, if you're dedicated to it and you want to stick through it, it'll most of the time pay out, right? So. Wow. That is, uh, that is quite the, you know, roller coaster over there. And, and I really enjoyed like the whole incident. And um, I'm a little stunned um, because this is the second time I had a previous episode with, with Zach, uh, Zach Westoff and, you know, something similar happened. And I, I want to ask, you know, people like yourself and Zach, like how, what made you believe in the signal and ignore the noise? Like, was it, was it that you were experienced in, you know, machining tool design and your fundamentals were so clear that you, you knew that, you know, this, this is going to work. I can see it in my head. I just, you know, can't make it happen on the floor or was it that sometimes you don't even know that you know you're you're right but you think that you'll figure it out on the way you know so what do you think it was matt it was it was like just you know you're just so used to it uh being in that life of of machining uh for so many you know roles yeah. and stuff what what do you think it was yeah in this case, um, uh, you know, there, there's been other cases that I maybe didn't have the confidence that I had and I kept pushing on. But in this case, for instance, I, I had had many years, well, not many years, I haven't been in the industry that long, but I've had multiple years of experience with machining. And like I said, I was in advanced, advanced machining, uh, working on different projects. I had worked in gear machining before that for a year and a half, um, and I'd been in transmission gear machining for, I think, two and a half years at this time. So I had many years, you know, at least five years of experience alone in machining leading up to this. So I knew the, you know, I knew how the part needed to be ran. And I proposed the solution to the, the tooling vendor months before. And they kind of, yeah that's a, that's a good solution, but let's try doing it with this. And I was like, okay, whatever, you know, I'll, I'll proceed down that way. And then finally, at one point I said, either you make me this tool or I'll proceed with someone else. And these guys, you know, I'd worked with them for a long time and I knew that they, they would make me what I needed to, but I was just, it was one of those points where you get almost fed up. It's like either make me what I need or <laughs> I got to move on. Right. 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 But, um, Luckily, they made me exactly what I needed, and it worked. And I'm telling you, but but I knew exactly how the process needed to flow. I knew exactly how the chips needed to flow off the insert. The chips are, you know, metal that you're machining off to make a surface that you're trying to uh, produce. I knew how it needed to run. I knew how it was going to run, and I just had to make that happen, right? I had to make my vision happen. And I knew it wasn't going to be right away. I thought we might get lucky, but uh, most of the time that's not the case. But uh, I knew that the first part that we ran as the chips came off it, I said, that is exactly what we need to run. 
And sure enough, it turned out it was. And so luckily my experience and just my knowledge of the situation and, you know, being very knowledgeable in, in that particular subject matter helped. And I just stuck to my guns and I proceeded, even though, like you said, there was noise in the background telling me that I shouldn't be doing this and I, I needed to get the machines back to production. So yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah. No, that was a great answer. And it, it looks like it was the former rather than the latter because of sometimes uh, some subjects are so known to you that in your head you can see it as a as a perfect formation and it's just the friction of reality uh you know things in reality that that prevent it from coming and and kind of make us second guess ourselves but i'm i'm glad that you know it didn't make you you quit quit that particular challenge and and you stuck to it so it, it was pretty good to to hear how you how you went through this and and quite an inspiration for any you know young person getting into this field where you know the trial and error is like a constant constant part especially with very strange kind of jobs or very custom jobs right so that was a great example so thank you for that uh, thank you for sharing that matt and and now uh, folks we're we're kind of getting into a little bit of uh, some technical terms so plunge turning is an alternative to regular turning when you have deep continuous grooves or difficult contours with relief cuts you know that would need like several tool changes so in this case i personally have not never seen plunge turning myself but this would be what matt is talking about and launch for ford and and you know even other companies like gm is is when it's kind of divided into three phases where you first design the process and simultaneously engineer it with your supplier then you you run it off uh, it's called runoff at the vendor site where you build this machine and you test it on a certain number of parts you know 30 parts 50 parts and then you deem it capable and then you tear it down you bring it back to ford and you build it up again and perform the same exact test which is what you know matt was saying with the repeated tests and and what we have is is capability and performance which is you know we in at ford at least we refer to them as CP and CPK, and, and these have to be in certain ranges for production to actually accept what you've built for them. Um, and if that doesn't happen, your program is, is late, and that is why his colleague was so worried, because on the one hand, he had stopped production, and nothing should actually stop, get in the way of regular production. So he had to <laughs> stop regular production, make some people you know not happy while he was trying this crazy new, like, you know, set up and and make it work but lo and behold it, it not only worked it saved you know um, a lot of money and one million dollars you know for one tool is just blowing my mind right now so <laughs> <laughs> to keep that in mind we had you know just for inserts on this line we had you know well for the program i should say we had over 50 inserts so you can you can look at the cost per unit that you put into making these parts right and this is only talking about turning these are the cheap these are the cheap tools that we run right you have other other tools that you know your cpu for that tool is you know a dollar or more per part you know some tools are even you know in the 
tens of dollars per part, right? Usually when you get into the tens of dollars per part, there's at least one or more engineers working on figuring out how they can make it cheaper, right? Because that starts impacting, you know, when you compound, <laughs> we're talking at the very beginning of making parts of the powertrain, right? And you compound that over, you know, I'm not exactly sure how many operations go in just to make one powertrain. But a powertrain is still only a certain portion of the vehicle. And then you have everything else that goes into the, you know, assembly of, of making a car. And when you talk dollars per unit for one tool, that's a very big concern. Um, and one thing that I'll just say, it's kind of the slogan at all of the plants when you're talking about, you know, shutting down production, you just don't do that, right? It, the One of the slogans is production is king, right? Production reigns over everything. Absolutely. If you, if you stop production, they say, there's always the saying that if you stop uh, production on a assembly line, on a final assembly line um, for the trucks, for instance, that, you know, you're costing thousands of dollars per minute right? Yeah. yeah. I, I think it may even be thousands of dollars per second. I'm not even sure, but yeah. Probably. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. It's crazy. It's, it's absolutely crazy. Right. So just to think about what all goes into it and what all comes out. Right. So. No, that is absolutely correct. And uh, this is true of any high speed, you know, high value manufacturing and the F-150 or comparable vehicles for any of the the manufacturers would have this kind of loss you know because their rates are so high their jobs per hour are so high and with you know coming back to the tools an insert is is a small piece of metal that is actually attached at the top of the actual tool holder and and the whole tool doesn't need to be in contact with with the job it it just needs to be this little kind of chip kind of thing that is bolted on you know, and correct me if I'm wrong Matt it bolted onto the top of the actual tool because that's probably what that's all you need for it to get in contact with the part and start cutting it and so you don't have to waste that costly material for that whole thing um did I say that right yeah so it's it's basically yeah exactly um it's basically a material that you put on the end of a you know, a tool, whether it be, you know, you call it a stick, whether you call it a, you know, whatever. It's, most of the time they'll be formed of what process you need. But you put this uh, piece, usually it's carbide or it's CBN or sometimes it's uh, ceramic, cermet. There's many different types of inserts that you can use. But uh, you put it on the end of a tool and it's basically to remove the metal. And like you said, they don't make the full tool out of it because, you know, it's easier to change out a little bitty insert at the end of the tool than to change the whole tool. It's also a lot cheaper to do it that way, right? Now your durable is your actual tool holder and you have an insert that's a throwaway piece of carbide or CBN, right? When you're cutting hard turn, when you're hard turning over 60 or well, over 50 something Rockwell, uh, it's you have to use CBN. You know they're coming out with some other materials that you can start using the coatings to carbides. But yeah, 
We, right. we don't want to go down that rabbit hole. We'll be talking for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know to bring it back into perspective with, with the commercials, the CPU I, I believe Matt is is cost per unit. I guess cost per unit. Yes, sir. Right. So ten dollars. You know, if you think about it, ten dollars per for making one job is is an extremely high fraction of using this tool. So it's very obvious that they have someone very smart looking at that kind of stuff, trying to bring it down uh, because so many parts like nuts and bolts just cost like a few cents. And this thing is $10 per part. So that really puts that whole, you know, challenge in perspective and and the stakes that are involved in in getting this to work. So I appreciate uh, all the things you, you described and all, you know, what you said and what you, you know, performed. It must've been quite stressful. In fact, you must be dreaming of, uh, you know, chips flying in your, you know, <laughs> at night and what am I going to do uh, and stuff like that. So I can I can imagine it was uh, quite the challenge. Yeah, remember what I said, too. I said the hardest technical problems I'm going through is what I'm going through right now. So Oh, yeah. OK, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I, I, you know, I don't know how much of that I could talk about or not talk about. So I'm not going to uh, get into it much. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, it's it's very interesting, right? You know, and here I am. You know, like I said, I I didn't mention this either. I, I started back for my master's last year as well, so I'm going for my master's in engineering management. I had a baby. COVID hit. I started a new two new jobs. Yeah, you'd think I'm crazy, but it's working out so far. <laughs> no, that's great, and congratulations on on the master's. Uh, that's that's yeah. a great uh, that's a great step. So, Matt, the next question is if you had a magic wand to change something about your work you know your your just your overall job or this whole industry or manufacturing what would it be and why but it has to be something reasonable i think many 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 companies are going through this now uh, nowadays you know in today's time and everything with the co- with the virus pandemic and you know also it, it just makes sense to go this through this as well where you go through and you reanalyze the costs and the the you know you you analyze exactly how much money you're putting into a program for instance or how much you're throwing into certain things and it's all about your operating strategies and so on and so forth. But I think if I could wave a magic wand, <laughs> the one thing would be if we commit <laughs> commit to a certain funding at the beginning, we get to keep all of that funding until the end. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, if you've been through a, a production program or whatnot in the manufacturing industry, right, you you say it costs a certain amount. I don't know. For instance, you say that to put this in, it's going to cost us for all the machinery and everything involved. It's going to cost you, I don't know, $10 million. And then as soon as you say that, you know, you have people coming after you. It's like, Hey, I need X amount of this back. And Hey, I need this back. And so you, end up, you know, at the end you're trying to do, you know, you're trying to do a project for pennies on the dollars, which I know that that's part of the industry and I know that's part of the business. And in all honesty, if they didn't do that, you probably, you know, profit margins would suffer, you know, everything involved with selling automotives would be disrupted. Right. But I think if you could, you know, 
that would be a big help to engineers like myself, you know, who are looking at putting in these programs and here we are focusing on the machines that we, we got to, you know, buy and develop and launch. And then in the middle of it, you're, you're sitting there focusing on, okay, where can I get, you know, X amount of dollars out of this program and, and give it away basically. So I know it's part of it and it won't go away, but I guess that's one thing that, you know, if, if, you know, if we say, now I don't want, I don't want it to go the opposite way either, Sid. So like, if I need more money, I don't want them to say, no, no, you said you need this amount of money. Right. But, um, you know, it, it goes both ways. Right. You know, but, uh, yeah, that's definitely the costs that go into a program and it, and it would surprise anybody on how much actually goes into a program. Right. It's, it's actually impressive. Um, but, uh, as soon as you get your money, people are asking for it. It's just the nature of the beast, right? So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's, it's because manufacturing has so many moving parts that you cannot anticipate when you start that that they would come in and you know claim their share and and you you would have no idea that they would exist you know these things just because there are so many moving parts so many variables so many groups that have to interact and come together to to make something there's going to be some group that you know wasn't fully calculated into the budget or you know something some new group had to come in and and make some something new and yeah, absolutely, and that's not an unreasonable request. Um, I think with with great, uh, I think with some good foresight or slack or you know buffer, it can be achieved. But like you said, it's it's really hard. It's really hard to predict, how, you know, what you might need and how something might change based on, you know, requirements. So absolutely, um, that's a I good answer, Matt. I definitely admire the you know the cost study groups and stuff that every you know you know all companies have these these guys and and gals that you know look into what exactly it takes to make something right you know even if it's just make a computer right every single piece you see on a computer costs some amount and that's where i get into the cpu right every single detail that is made in the you know in the powertrain every single detail if you see any surface on a powertrain everything costs something and it's just, you know, you have to, when you're as a lead engineer and you're going into a new program, you have to consider everything. And it's like, it's kind of a fun challenge to have, but you really hope you don't mess it up <laughs> because if you do, you got to live with it. Right. So it's, it's, it's very interesting, but, uh, I know that that's not going to go away anytime soon. And, I'm sure people come knocking on the door tomorrow to ask for more money, right? So it's, you know, just part of it. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks for that answer, Matt. And for our for our closing answer or question, which is which is a surprise one unless uh you listen to any of the podcasts, which is uh if if this was 2051 or or if you were transported to the year 2051, what would that factory be like well, i hope i'm retired by that time <laughs> <laughs> well let's say you went with but, your grandson yeah. who was 
you know, who was yeah. doing something advanced in that factory, what would, you know, that look like? Well, you know, that's a long time in the future. And you, you hope that things would definitely change for the better, right? You, you see automated guided vehicles within the factories today. It seems like most factories are going to those versus, you know, foreclosed, you know, dunnage and so on and so forth, right? Yeah, it's it's loaded to these vehicles or it's loaded off of the machine with these, but I think you're going to see a lot more of those come into play. I mean, you're already seeing them, right? But I think you'll see that uh, come into play. So you, you, I think you would see that. I would hope that you would see a clearer, you know, obviously, you know, you, everybody has their bill of processes for the lines that they're making. And I don't know, it, it, you know, with the advancements in uh, additive manufacturing and the precisions, you know, the precision that they're getting to now, I think that you'll see some of that come along, you know, with the 3D manufacturing and everything. I know that there are ways out now, but, you know, as far as making mass production, but you, I'd imagine, well, maybe by 2051 you see that because right now, you know, when you're looking at manufacturing, like, for instance, a gear, right, you start with a forging that has a lot of material on top of it, and you need all that on, on it so that in the blanking and through heat treat and through all of the processes that you have enough material accounted for to make the final product to the, the GD&T that you need to hold. Um, I think you'll see additive manufacturing come a long way by 2051. I think you'll see AGVs roaming around everywhere like crazy. Um, with all of this, you know, you talk, we talked about collaborative robots. You're going to have those. I don't even think that that's 30 years in the future. I think that's maybe even five, 10 years in the future that you're going to have those working side by side with people, you know, people hand, handling parts and handing them off to the robots or vice versa, or, you know, you're going to see something along those lines come into play, right? You, you, you're already seeing those take over ergonomically inefficient jobs, right? Um, that are coming into the, you know, industry. So it, I think you'll, the ability to produce something, the cost for it will only decrease. I, obviously, you, you know, you look at everybody's, you know, the industry's, you know, promise to go all electric or at least hybrid and electric by X amount in the future, right? You're going to see a lot more electrified vehicles. Maybe, maybe by then they come up with a different way of powering a vehicle. You never know, right? We may be only okay. a year out from, you know, some other sort of clean energy. They might invent a vehicle. Uh, yeah. nuclear fusion. Who knows? Never know. Yeah. Anything, you know like that so yeah i think it, it, it'll, it'll be interesting you know what advancements will hold and what advancements will uh, maybe not even take off right but i think you're going to see a lot more fork free plants you're going to see which you know we survive 
you know, a lot of our fork drivers are, you know, they help us survive on the lines and, and keep parts into production and so on and so forth. But the problem with those uh, vehicles are they have a lot of blind spots. And while there's a lot of safety measures put into keeping everyone safe around fork-loaded vehicles, it just takes one minor mistake. It's like a car, right? It takes one minor mistake driving, one slip, even when you don't mean to, and, and things can go wrong. All right. So you're going to see that, you know, those go down. You already see it. You know, you already see fork areas go, starting to go away, right? So yeah, the the vision would be a safer, more productive factory, right? The, the simple vision, I should say, right? But I think you're going to see, and more economic friendly factory, I would imagine. Uh, not economic, I'm sorry, environmental hopefully economic friendly as well, but uh, environmental friendly uh, factories, right? So. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I like the answer, Matt. And and you are uh, not the first who spoke about a safer factory because it is strange and it is surprising that in 2021, we still wish for a safer factory. So that that, that is a reality of manufacturing is that despite the fact that we are far, far safer than the factories of 1930 or something, we are still not there. And, and hopefully it can get solved, you know, in in that time. Uh, so th- that's a very good point. And, and I knew you'd, you'd say something about uh, machining in the sense that, yeah, you, you know, does additive manufacturing, does it actually solve all the problems? We would hope so. In that case, yes, we wouldn't need to waste like 30, 40, 50% of the material we started out with, you know, potentially saving a lot of money. But let's see how that turns out. Uh, There are some great applications, although for structural and mechanical components with a lot of torque, you know, it's not widespread. So we'll have to see how the material science shapes up. Uh, and, and like you said, fork trucks, have, I've also been in, you know, that plant uh, or several plants where it, it is easy for, it, it is very, it's a very hard job to operate a fork truck. So, you know, that that does happen and uh, hopefully the AGVs, they, they solve this problem and, and um, you know, make plants uh, safer. So, yeah, that's yeah. a great answer, Matt. Um, and thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for giving all of those answers. They were very, very interesting. All of them were uh, very informative for me. I, I am not familiar with the machining world. So the, the last time I operated a lathe was back in college. So it's been a long time since I got into all of those, you know, all of that terminology. And then hopefully the audience found it very interesting too. So Thanks again, Matt. Congratulations on your baby girl. Congratulations on the new job and the masters. Um, say hi to the family and uh, thank you so much again. Take care. Yeah, thank you, Sid. Take care. Right? If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the Means of Production podcast for more stories from people behind all the manufactured goods we use, love, and depend on. This episode was made possible by Pashi, the operating system for manufacturing. Pashi unifies the entire production process for any product, encompassing operator instruction and data input interfaces, stage logic and parameter thresholding, 
machine interfacing and configuration, robot programming and coordination, and stage-to-stage -stage production flow control into a single Pashi program. Check us out at Pashi.com. And until we meet again, have a fantastic day and take care.